Hello, everyone. I'm Helena Gaspard from the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa. Together with our partners, Canada 2020 and Global Progress, we launched the Recovery Project. The Recovery Project is about thinking ahead to the opportunities and challenges beyond the emergency response to the pandemic. It's about bringing forward a variety of perspectives and ideas to reinvigorate our economies, enhance institutions, and to make better policy choices. The COVID-19 pandemic and its ramifications have been shaped by country contexts. From economics to health, countries of varying wealth and development have had to grapple with the effects and ramifications of the pandemic and what that means for their rebuilding. Today, we have the distinguished opportunity to hear from four Canadian diplomats. They're here to share their experiences and perspectives right from the ground in India, Mozambique, Italy, and the United States. We're pleased to be joined by Ambassador Alexandra Bugaliskis, Canada's Ambassador to the Italian Republic, High Commissioner Carolyn Delaney in Mozambique, High Commissioner Nadir Patel for the Republic of India, and Consul General Brandon Lee, who's based in Seattle. Thank you very much, everyone, for joining us. We're delighted to hear from so many of you today who are representing Canada as our ambassadors, as our high commissioners, as our consul generals abroad. Uh, it's a real privilege, especially in this particular context, to be able to hear from you and to hear from you directly on what it's like in, in different places and, and how uh, Canada's being perceived and, and what role we might see for Canada going forward. So to start us off, um, I'd love to have you unpack for us what diplomacy looks like in the context of a global emergency, because for many of us, this is the first time in our lifetimes where a, a global pandemic or any form of emergency has been protracted uh, in this way. And um, perhaps, um, Consul General Lee, if you'd like to start us off on what it's like being a diplomat in this context and what you're doing to represent Canada's interests in the U.S. Sure, thank you very much. And it's a pleasure to be on the podcast today. Um, it, it's such a, an important and, and big question. I think simply put, um, the role of diplomacy is more important than ever as countries are racing and fighting to to. Um, one, repatriate their own citizens, and uh, number two, work with other countries for essential supplies like PPEs and ventilators and um, other health equipment. I think the role of diplomacy, especially here in the U.S., um, we saw that uh, working together very closely with the United States, um, our colleagues at the federal levels, to make sure that, um, you know, things like uh, closing down the U.S.-Canada border happens smoothly, so essential uh, travel and essential business can continue. Um, you know, we had a small situation with PPEs being uh, uh, turned back at the border, so we immediately got on top of that situation, and, um, you know, we investigated, and in fact, we found that most of the fiber used to manufacture PPE masks in the U.S., we're actually coming from Canadian, uh, a Canadian supplier in British Columbia. So we, we relayed that information. And so really, I think uh, as countries work together, which we must during a pandemic, um, the role of diplomacy is more essential than, than ever. Thank you for that. Um, Ambassador Bugaliskis, 
seeing as though you're in a European context and you had a, a front row seat effectively to the extreme challenges that Italy faced uh, as, as one of the first open democracies to be impacted by the pandemic. Can you tell us what it was like there and how you saw diplomacy uh, play out in the context of the EU? Well, thanks very much. You know, <clears throat> I was kind of moaning a little bit. This is my fourth uh, head of mission posting and everything seemed a little bit uh, too uh, the same. Um, and I said in 37 years, you know, I'd kind of seen it all. And then COVID-19 uh, hit and it is nothing like any other crisis. I've uh, been through earthquakes and coup d'etats, but when a pandemic hits and hits most of the world at the same time, it's an absolutely different situation. So internally in the embassy, we had to really scramble. As you said, we were the first uh, on the European front. So we reached out immediately to our colleagues in China. And I have to really give a shout out to Master Barton and the team uh, in, in, uh, in China, because we really relied upon uh, a lot of the experience and best practices that they had put in in their guidelines. And then in turn, uh, as the uh, pandemic uh, went across Europe, we found ourselves in a situation of reaching out to other missions and helping them with uh, their development of guidelines. Everything was new. Uh, everything from having to work remotely and making sure that staff were safe, that they had the equipment they needed to, to function. We never closed the embassy. Uh, it was essential to maintain services, not only consular, but business uh, throughout the, uh, the pandemic, but we had to do it in a, in a brand new way. But when you talk about diplomacy, one of the keys was really keeping on top of a very fast-moving situation in Italy with decrees coming out, you know, often at 10 o'clock or midnight, and making sure that our staff uh, understood the implications for their own movements and their own safety, um, and getting that out, obviously, to Canadians. Now, uh, we didn't have the repatriations that some had in others, uh, but we had thousands of Canadians who were here in Italy, and we had to find means by which to communicate that through our social media, through our Facebook, uh, Twitter accounts. So that has been a big challenge. On the di diplomatic front, uh, in fact, the access has been incredible during this crisis. Uh, we found Foreign Minister Champagne was speaking almost on a weekly basis with Foreign Minister Di Maio here. Uh, our Minister of Development, uh, Gould, was in touch with Vice Minister Del Rey on cooperation with regards to developing countries. I'm also responsible here for the UN agency, so we were uh, almost in daily contact uh, because we had to avoid the health crisis becoming a food crisis in the developing world. So I have to say communication is the key lesson coming out of this. Um, and we've learned new tricks uh, along the way. And we're not going to stop using them even as we go into a post-COVID era. Ambassador Bugaliskis, when, when you're describing that, it sounds as if though you're playing chess at multiple levels at any given time. When you're um, in, in diplomacy and, you know, I, I'd like to pick up from High Commissioners Patel and Delaney on the differentiated context, right? When when you are a diplomat, um, you're you're certainly, of course, representing your your own country's interests, our country's interests abroad. But the context in India and Mozambique are so different, say, than they are in Italy and in the United States. Can you help us understand what it looked like on the ground? Um, Ambassador Bugaliski raised, uh, you know, important considerations with respect to poverty um, and food security and the like. Can you tell us what it was like in, in your two um, uh, countries? The word I would use is adapt. We we immediately need to needed to adapt to the situation on the ground, and um, you know, stepping back to 
how you framed the earlier questions, um, we're not necessarily built for all the potential scenarios that could emerge as diplomats abroad. So, you know, we, we could, we were very well prepared in terms of overall emergency preparedness and planning. Um, but we would not have expected those preparations to match exactly what we would need to do in the case of a pandemic. So there's uh, some level of adapting on the ground um, in, re in relation to our mission structure, postures, supporting Canadians. But then on top of that, you have a further localization. So there's no one-size-fits-all approach that can work around the world. Um, and it's very rare that you would have an emergency or a crisis like, that, 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 like this that is worldwide. Here in India, y you know, uh, the... Uh, the, the wave of the, the virus um, was a bit delayed. Uh, certainly there was a very strict lockdown here. That in itself brought all kinds of challenges that uh, needed to be managed, uh, particularly around food security, around migrant uh, workers, day laborers who um, relied on day wages and were not able to, to feed themselves. So in addition to the virus and the impact on health there that you had other risks that emerged uh, as well. Then um, in terms of our roles as diplomats having to adapt in terms of what it is that we may have been trade commissioners, but now we're asked to take on roles as consular officers to help uh, thousands and thousands of Canadians uh, uh, return to Canada stranded here during a lockdown, and that wasn't anticipated. Um, in terms of trade, you know, a focus on supply chain related issues, access to pharmaceuticals for Canadian companies or supporting Canadian uh, uh, business leaders that were stuck here on the ground and how we're going to navigate them back to Canada. So I, I, I think um, there are unique uh, circumstances in each of our countries. Localizing it required a fair bit of adapting. And, uh, and, 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 and as a result, you know, the way we sort of conduct our roles as diplomats uh, changed or needed to change, and we can only be prepared for this uh, to some extent. Uh, a lot of it, you're sort of figuring out on the ground. And as uh, uh, Ambassador Bugaliska said, you know, we we did rely on the experiences of others, such as those in Beijing and other countries that were ahead of the curve compared to where we were here in India, and that helped quite a bit as well. Hi, Commissioner Delaney. Would you like to pick up on that and, and help get us started on what it looks like or, or what it how you repatriated so many Canadians? It comforts me actually to hear Ambassador, Ambassador Bugaliska say that she's never seen anything like this before. Um, I remember us talking in mid-March mid about the fact that I had worked in some pretty difficult countries and contexts before, but this experience was completely different. And so what we had to deal with was um, certainly multiple um, challenges at the same time. First, our duty of care for our staff and our dependents. We evacuated eight Canadians and 15 dependents from here in Maputo. And then from Maputo, we also cover three different countries, Mozambique, Malawi, and Eswatini. And we did not have some of the large numbers that other countries saw and in terms of repatriating Canadian citizens. And we also benefited from the fact that the government of Mozambique kept the airspace open for quite some time, which allowed for some departures at the beginning of the crisis. Um, but then trying to work um, with Canadians in Eswatini and Malawi, where we don't have access to those countries and supporting them um, to be able to get on flights and that sort of thing was, was definitely a real challenge. And in the meantime, we have a very large development program here. We have a large development program in Mozambique. Um, we also have a substantial development investment in Malawi. 
And so monitoring the situation in those countries and understanding the impact on our existing programming um, and looking for ways to be able to coordinate with our partners, to work with government um, and to respond to the crisis all at the same time while learning how to telework um, was a real significant challenge. And I have to say, this is one thing that's very much impressed me about um, the department and the staff and, and my team is the resilience and flexibility that everybody showed um, in their ability to continue doing their work um, while also trying to figure out new IT tools and deal with significant challenge, challenges like slow internet connections. So it's definitely been a learning experience. Hi, Commissioner Delaney. I'd like to pick up on what you mentioned with respect to the development program, right? That, the, that Canada, that you were running a, a crucial development program in the area. And now with the pandemic, I would imagine much of that's disrupted. And what can we learn uh, as, as Canadians? What can we learn for diplomacy for foreign aid about the need in poorer countries? Are, should we be thinking about uh, different types of aid, right? Should it be focused perhaps more on health structures versus, um, you know, food sovereignty? You know, what are the, what are the challenges on the ground? And, and what can we extract and what can we learn from the current circumstance? Thanks. That's a really great question. And I think there's a heck of a lot to learn already. One of the biggest lessons, I think, is not to make assumptions what's going to happen um, in this region and in Africa, generally speaking. We're all familiar with the idea that Africa is not a country, it's a continent um, with 54 different countries. But I think in practice, that's still something that we forget, forget within the international community. And we saw it play out in the early, early stages of the pandemic, where the modeling, for example, that was being used to predict what might happen in Mozambique was using data from other countries that had already, that were farther along the curve. And we've seen, we've seen, we saw very quickly that that, that wasn't actually useful with regards to predicting what was going to happen here. And we also, I think, underestimated the capacity and resilience um, of countries in the region. Many of them responded very quickly early on in the pandemic, much earlier than Canada did, for example. And that has seen, a, as a result, a much slower growth with regards to the pandemic and an ability for them to build capacity um, while the curve is still fairly low. The numbers here in Mozambique are still only 762 cases. Eswatini has 690 and Malawi is a little bit higher with 941. So I think the other thing to remember about this part of the world is that it's in a very different place with regards to the pandemic. And while Europe and Canada might be feeling like there's a possibility of opening up, we're still learning how the pandemic will play out here. I want to stress one other very important lesson from health pandemics elsewhere in the world, and that's the importance of continuity of services. This is one I do not think we figured out just yet, um, but it's one that we need to take extremely seriously because we've seen in other places that the health impact can often be greater in areas outside of the actual pandemic because of the impact on health services. And we're already seeing that in many countries, including developed countries, where people are going less often to the doctor, they might not be seeking services. We know in um, Mozambique that less um, women are going to health facilities to have babies, that increases risk. Um, and I, so I think this is one of the challenges that we need to look at really, really closely is not just how we support the response, but how, also how we maintain resilience in the rest of the system. I think those are crucial considerations that maybe a number of us haven't thought about those downstream effects and maybe what's not happening um, in the context of a pandemic. Hi, Commissioner Patel. You have 
you are in one of the most densely populated countries in the world with a, a substantive um, population. And there's a great deal of economic and social variance in the country, right? I'm thinking here about rural-urban divides, let alone the differences in pandemic outbreaks in urban centers in India versus rural areas. Can you talk to us about that, that management, how the urban-rural divide is being managed, but also how, um, how, how the country is reacting to the movement of migrant workers or the movement of people more generally? I think it's um, the, uh, you know, India being a, a federation, um, you've seen uh, a strong level of collaboration between the central government and state governments. Uh, but at the same time, there have been divergent views. And uh, what started off as uh, a central government-led uh, lockdown, bringing all states uh, in conformity with the requirements to, uh, to slow down the spread of the virus, um, has now sort of morphed into a, a bit more of a decentralized approach, giving uh, states the flexibility to manage um, uh, measures uh, to combat the fact that the virus itself here um, is uh, spreading disproportionately around the country. Some parts are hit ha harder than other parts. Um, the, uh, the migrant workers uh, issue from the very beginning was quite a challenge to manage. And to some extent, I'm not so sure it was anticipated, the mass migration. And that has created some additional risks in terms of uh, adding to the spread of the virus. Um, and uh, what you're seeing is, you know, quite a bit of uh, disparate um, uh, issues across the country. So you, you look at the state of Maharashtra and the city of Mumbai, uh, very, very significant rise in the number of cases. Same here in Delhi, same here in Chennai. Uh, but other large cities like Bangalore has not seen the same. Bangalore is about 10,000 cases. Um, Mumbai and the surrounding areas around 100,000. Delhi is around 70,000, I think, today. Uh, all large cities, but but not the same. And, and I think there are many reasons for that, uh, including uh, how densely populated the uh, the cities are making social or physical distancing almost impossible in certain areas of these cities. Um, the uh, wide-ranging development of the healthcare system, it, it's quite disparate around the country as well. Um, and where migrant workers are returning to uh, in certain cases uh, is now becoming a greater issue as well. You're, what you're seeing is an increase in the prevalence of the virus in rural areas and many, many villages uh, as migrant workers from the big cities are uh, are going home as well. It, it, it is a, a challenge that uh, has been here from the very, very beginning, uh, going back a few months. And, you know, the lockdown was necessary not only to slow down the spread of the virus, but for states and municipalities to try to prepare healthcare systems for what was coming. Um, but now you're seeing a rather rapid rise in the number of cases, partly fueled by migration, uh, an easing of restrictions here across the country because, you know, the classic dilemma that many countries have faced, the trade-off between uh, locking down and the impact on economic growth uh, versus uh, the health and safety of the population. They've had to open up here because further lockdowns and economic um, growth challenges we're going to create a whole series of other challenges around people being able to uh, to, 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 to provide for themselves. Uh, the economic risks were, were so significant. So now there's a balance that they're trying to strike in terms of uh, 
how to mitigate spread of the virus uh, versus opening up, not unlike other countries. But a big part of that is to do so with a regional uh, perspective. You know, look at lockdown measures by state or by municipality or city uh, or focus on clusters rather than focus on the country as a whole. Uh, and I think that is the strategy that not only is uh, in place now, but will need to be in place for the foreseeable future. Uh, but there's no doubt that migration patterns uh, have contributed some of the challenges. But at the same time, it's hard to see what other uh, options there would have been um, to manage some of that. Thank you for that overview. Ambassador Bouliskis, I, I, I'd love for you um, to help us think about some of the, the issues that High Commissioner Patel raised, right, when when he's talking about decision-making and the trade-offs between opening up versus walking down and the like, in my mind, those are actually considerations of institutional confidence, right, and institutional stability. What can Italy teach us about the importance of that confidence in institutions, especially um, in an emergency situation? And and maybe two, if, if I'll tack on one more part to the question, what do you think Italy can teach the rest of the world um, about preparedness generally, uh, especially in anticipation of a second wave? I would say that, you know, unlike in business, there's no first mover advantage in the case of the pandemic. And, you know, when Italy got hit and it got hit harder and faster, in fact, the, the um, coronavirus here uh, was multiplying a day faster than even in, in China. Um, there's not a lot of time for thinking. You need to, to act. There, there were some early decisions that were not as good as they might have been. There were some mistakes made along the way um, due to a lack of information or even misinformation, for example, the mythology that somehow symptomatic people could not uh, be contagious. Uh, that led to some bad decisions um, in an effort to isolate uh, some of the COVID patients. Some um, decisions were made to house them within long-term uh, care facilities. And, you know, it's not being critical of Italy. They were on the front lines and doing the best they could under the circumstances. What's really uh, amazing about Italy has been the fact how open how transparent and frank they have been on the lessons learned and in sharing that with the world. Um, they've really, really been uh, very, very uh, open in sharing those best and bad practices. Um, and because of that, many countries in Europe and particularly North America, I think, were m in much better situation uh, facing the onset uh, of, the, of the pandemic. Um, one of the biggest surprises, of course, is when they did take action, they took it and they really locked down. They locked down in the north, as we know, um, and then there was this uh, sudden migration to the south, but that was soon uh, um, followed up by locking down the entire country, and it was locked down. What a shock, you know, to go out into the streets of Rome, uh, where you know, thousands and thousands of tourists and Italians usually throng, and to see it utterly empty. Um, Italians were incredibly disciplined, and that's another lesson. Um, when you have a nation that is actually listening uh, to facts, to scientific uh, health advice, and taking it and implementing it, then you get results. And we've seen those results. 
Uh, I mean, there were, was an increase of 20 to 25 percent in the early weeks of the pandemic of cases. We are now down to 0.1 percent. Um, and that is largely because of the actions taken by people very seriously, staying home, staying out of parks, um, even at, unfortunately, the damage uh, that accrued to the economy. We're now in a stage uh, where we're living with the virus, as uh, Prime Minister Conte puts it, which means that we have to continue to be very, very careful with social distancing and all of the health protocols, but also be smarter so that manufacturing can reopen. Tourism, that is still co coming a bit more slowly, uh, not only because there aren't a lot of tourists yet, but also, of course, because of the threat they could pose. So that will need to be brought in even more gradually as we move forward. So enormous lessons uh, to be learned with regards to the need to really follow um, scientific advice. One of the criticisms was that in the early days, it was led by civil protection. That era was soon amended and health authorities really took over control with regards to guiding the advice that the government was using. Um, one thing I haven't heard and I wouldn't mind mentioning as well is the impact on vulnerable groups. And here I'll talk about women particularly. I guess it shouldn't have been a surprise, but the, um, the pandemic and the lockdown really impacted on women. They were both victims and victors. I say that because they were victims of, unfortunately, a huge rise in domestic violence. But they were also victors in the sense that these were frontline workers, many of them nurses, many of them working in grocery stores or in, in, in care facilities, and therefore also um, very vulnerable. And many of them did, unfortunately, uh, catch uh, coronavirus. Um, I think as we move forward, we really need to look at how we can assist women. They've also uh, had to bear the brunt of the closure of schools. Many of them are now at home having to help children, uh, particularly on online schooling. And uh, we had to respond to that within the mission as well by making sure that uh, our staff had the capacity to look after their families. And that's you know, something that all of my colleagues have pointed out. What was so different about this pandemic is that you not only are outward looking and trying to solve some of the problems, but you have to also protect yourself in order to be <laughs> able to be of assistance to others. So those are uh, some of the lessons. I mean, the, the most serious le lesson is a need for testing, testing, and tracking. Uh, I don't know if you want to move into that in the, in the next round, but uh, you need those numbers. You need them to be uh, not only collected regionally, but centralized. Um, and uh, you, as we look at new tracking mechanisms uh, for the second phase of living with the virus, we face huge challenges with regards to privacy and getting people to voluntarily uh, upload these. I don't think I've seen any country yet that's really reached threshold of 60%. But if there's a lesson going forward, if we want to be able to live with the virus and be able to continue uh, our economies, we're going to need to be much more targeted in our and our, our approach. Ambassador, I think there are a number of lessons that you've raised there that I think in and of themselves would warrant it completely, you know, their own conversation, especially when you're talking about um, women, about um, groups that may have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic, be they, you know, uh, low wage or precarious workers. Um, you know, we see in the U.S. Um, a, a completely different experience for Black and Hispanic uh, Americans relative to others in terms of the impacts of this pandemic. Um, Consul General Lee, picking up on, see, the, the variable response among the United States, you know, in contrast to uh, the the whole of country approach that the ambassador was describing in Italy. Can you 
Can you walk us through what it's like being in the U.S.? You're, you're representing Canada's interests. This is our, you know, crucial trading partner. And the environment is uncertain. So what do you do? How do you monitor? And how do you, you work to ensure that um, our country's interests are, are, are at the forefront? Well, thank you for that question. We monitor very closely. <laughs> but I think... Um, uh, this this Dr. Tam our, our in Canada, she said it very well, actually. She said that um, in Canada, we it's not one pandemic, it's 13 pandemics. Um, and as you correctly mentioned, in the U.S., every state has a different uh, system, a different response. So um, and now we're watching even with here within Washington state, we're seeing that. Uh, you know, we've, we're having the largest outbreak now in Yakima County um, in the south of Washington state, but two thirds of Yakima County where we know are uh, people employed in essential services. So that's the agriculture, healthcare, and even the wholesale trade. So this is the uh, critical supply chains that you're mentioning. Um, and we're seeing outbreaks there. Meanwhile, just a couple hours north, British Columbia is doing extremely well with uh, single-digit infection rates. So um, the one thing perhaps uh, to, to, to pull out is the importance of watching data and having excellent uh, data hygiene, if you will, um, unpacking the numbers and following very closely how they're um, how they're manifesting in, in different areas and how, what comprises these numbers, what's behind these numbers. Uh, for example, how much testing is being done and, um, and so on. So it, it has been uh, an extremely coordinated uh, effort. And I think uh, as mentioned several times, you know, the, the diplomatic effort speaking with other foreign nationals, speaking with local governments, speaking with our uh, health and security agencies and border agencies. It's been just enormously uh, 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 rich. And I think the the team approach, um, of course, we're seeing, especially in the U.S., but in in many countries, we're seeing uh, the unfortunate uh, reality that political uh, interests are also manifesting as the pandemic goes on. Um, that that is making it more challenging uh, to come up with a more data and science evidence driven approach uh, uh, response on this. The the one thing I would like to call out is that here in Washington State, the former governor, so Christine Gregoire, um, she's being recognized now even global as one of the global leaders in the pandemic where very early on, and of course, Seattle was ground zero for the U.S., uh, former Governor Gregoire um, brought together the largest companies here and insisted on a science-based, evidence-based response. Uh, and here in the U.S., I can say that um, uh, with, with Seattle having Amazon, Microsoft, Boeing, um, you know, just the three, those three companies employ over 170,000 people uh, it, within the region. Having them agree and take a data and evidence science-based response really has helped bring together governments and focus our vision 
um, as we as we're continuing to move forward on this. There's some interesting um, ways of, of framing responses to the pandemic and of being able to corral or leverage support from, from different areas, from, from the corporate sector, from the public sector, uh, and the like. Um, Hi, Commissioner Delaney. Uh, picking up on that, if we're thinking about support in, in a domestic context, can you help us unpack support in a global context? Are countries asking Canada for help? Are they asking each other for help? And and how does that play out in the context of a pandemic? Is it um, bilateral, you know, between between countries, or is it mainly through multilateral institutions that support's being sought? Yeah, this is a great question because I think it COVID really demonstrates the complexity of providing support um, in developing countries. And it also, I think, has highlighted for Canada the different tools that we have available to provide support. And then at the same time, the sort of the gravity of the challenge is pushing us to be much more um, flexible, rapid and innovative than I think uh, we are on a normal basis, which is great. And one of the ways that I talk about this in the context of um, the three countries I'm responsible for, Mozambique, Malawi and Iswatini, is three sort of levels of support from the, from the government of Canada. There's the first is the global level. So this is things like um, the Prime Minister's announcement of $850 million to support research and innovation um, into um, COVID-19 um, testing, treatment, um, all of those things, which I think is incredibly important at a global level. It's obviously um, important for Canadians as well. Um, and one of the things that I think is going to be useful going forward is thinking about how that investment um, can support the poorest and most vulnerable, both in Canada, but then also around the world. If we look at testing as an example, um, I think testing is one of those tools that's going to make it much easier or much quicker for us to be able to open up. And if we can come up with cheap, rapid tests that are available to the vast majority of the world, it's going to make a di significant difference with regards to the ability of countries to recover and to resume economic activities. The other one that I highlight is regional support. And so Africa itself demonstrates a lot of region, um, leadership at the continental level um, with regards to the response to COVID. Um, the African Union um, does a fair amount of work on this. In addition, there's also the African Center for Disease Control. Um, and so providing support to those institutions that are best placed to understand the dynamics in the continent is a real opportunity for Canada um, and one that we are proceeding, pro um, proceeding with. Um, and then, of course, there's the response at the local level. And this is why my view is definitely that you need to, we need to use all of the tools at our disposal, um, from global multilateral responses um, to regional and then to local. Um, it's often those partners um, or and local governments that are best placed on the ground to know exactly what the needs are. And in addition, it's local um, funding that can be targeted to the specific um, context that's happening on the ground there. So for example, in Mozambique, I would say the most immediate needs at the present time are strengthening um, the health response to COVID-19. So testing, contract tracing, public information. And then at the same time, um, social protection. So this is measures to support the poorest and most vulnerable to be able to um, be resilient in, in the face of the economic crisis that is happening um, and that is likely to last at least a couple, if not um, three or four years. So um, I hope that answers the question. I think the answer is basically we, we should be looking at how to use all of our tools and trying to be as innovative as possible. 
definitely a number of, of pathways forward. And High Commissioner Patel, thinking about that regional focus approach that High Commissioner Delaney is, is referencing with different areas of focus or action, say, moving from, you know, the local to, you know, the health infrastructure through to, you know, testing and the like. Where do you think Canada can play a role? I mean, you're in a very large country from population and, and geographic perspectives. How do you think a country um, like Canada can support um, countries like India who have big roles to play in their individual regions? I think the first thing to note is that Canada and India are, in fact, very closely dialoguing on where there could be some opportunities to collaborate. You know, going through the experience of the last uh, few months, um, there has been, you know, a tendency for countries to take stock of what, you know, the lessons learned from the pandemic have been, and to some extent, shockproof your countries, your economies, um, uh, to ensure that some of the challenges that we all face are, are, are not repeated to the extent possible. Um, and that creates, you know, risks of um, uh, protectionist sentiments and other other uh, elements like that, which we're seeing in different places around the world. Um, and so, you know, the dialogue between Canada and India is such that um, there probably has never been a more important time to r- rather than go it alone, look at collaborating together, either bilaterally, regionally, or multilaterally. Um, our... Um, uh, Prime ministers spoke uh, about a week and a half ago. Our foreign ministers, our trade ministers are in regular contact. Our trade ministers in particular on ways in which we could collaborate in the healthcare uh, space. Uh, Canada has some expertise that uh, we can uh, work with India on further uh, develop its, its healthcare ecosystem. India is one of the world's largest uh, manufacturers of pharmaceuticals, many of the ingredients and the supply chain Canada can benefit from or does. Uh, so how, are, how can we, we work together to ensure that we, in fact, are, are not uh, thinking inward, but rather can uh, benefit each other? So there's a fair bit going on on that, and that extends beyond the central government level, but also uh, looking at the size of India the fact that um, the size of some of the states, we have a fair bit of collaboration at the state level uh, as well. Um, regionally, I think it's, uh, you know, my responsibilities include Nepal and Bhutan as well. Um, India plays a significant leadership role in the region. And uh, there has been some strong collaboration between India and some of its regional partners. And, and we're looking at ways in which we can play a role, given that we have a large presence of uh, Canadian companies and an ecosystem here that's well-developed, it could actually be leveraged for impact in the broader region here uh, as well. Um, th- the other thing to think a little bit about that um, is, you know, all of our uh, efforts over the last uh, y- years in terms of uh, Canada-India have had a long-term mindset uh, driving our programs, you know, whether it's all the uh, record numbers in terms of trade and investment or growth in the relationship or bilateral ties or, or, or students and educational ties, all of that has been driven from a long-term perspective and how India and Canada can gain uh, from each other. We can leverage synergies, looking at things from a long-term perspective. 
for the first time, for the first time since I've been here, you know, we are now thinking, well, hold on, let's start looking at the short term and the near term. Um, in the past, you know, short termism was very much a risk in the overall scheme of uh, investment planning and trade facilitation. Um, today, it's a little bit more, okay, what is it that we need to do to navigate through this crisis, come out on the other end um, successful and hopefully stronger, whether it's investments, trade, any other bilateral ties, economic development, uh, social development. Um, and uh, because, you know, the focus needs to be a bit more on surviving and navigating through uh, before we can thrive for the long term. And, and that's been underpinning some of the thinking that we're doing in terms of strategizing and refocusing our efforts on where there are opportunities in India and Canada for um, uh, mutual synergies to be leveraged. Thank you for that. And and thinking about that question um, of synergies, that question of coordination, Consul General Lee and Ambassador Vogeliskis, you're, you're both in federal states, right? And we've seen very different responses um, from the two. One that might be, you know, perhaps more tightly coordinated in the, the case of Italy and perhaps more variable uh, in the context um, of the U.S. And I'm wondering if you can... Um, speak to the the different considerations, the trade-offs, if you will, in managing a federal state in uh, in a moment of crisis and, and where you think uh, we can learn from each one um, of, of your individual countries, Italy and the U.S. That's a good, very, but a very complicated question and, and a rather delicate one as well, being a federal country ourselves. Um, so there are there are enormous challenges. Um, one likes to think that in a crisis everybody will come together, and to a certain degree, I would say that did happen in Italy. Um, but there is always a pull uh, between uh, the regions and the uh, the national government. I guess one thing that helped here is that uh, as of the thirty first of January, they installed the emergency legislation, and that did provide the central government with a lot more power than it would normally have been able to. That doesn't mean that you can necessarily use it or that you, if, uh, you can use it without consequences. And so uh, there, you know, it had to, to be uh, carefully uh, implemented uh, by the central government. But in general, I do think the regions tended to respond. In fact, because in the North, which was generally very strong, both economically and politically, obviously it was on fire. Uh, the uh, pandemic, uh, hit the northern part of Italy so strongly that they realized that they needed uh, assistance and to cooperate. The hospital system was very, uh, very quickly overrun, and so they had to find new uh, new ways to address this. Um, in, in Italy, um, the, uh, the central government uh, has found, I think, a good balance uh, between setting um, standards, national standards, but also allowing for regional adaptation and tailoring to the, you know, the local circumstances. Uh, there is always throughout the pandemic been a huge difference between what's happening in the South and the North. Uh, luckily, uh, perhaps in part because lessons were learned, uh, the South was largely saved from the, uh, the impact that uh, the North uh, underwent. And so there was that exchange. You did see uh, assistance coming from different regions, uh, including in the south, uh, doctors and nurses coming up north to be able to support uh, the other uh, the regions. Um, so I think they, they largely got it right. Uh, there are more consequences now as we move into the second phase of uh, the renewal of the economic uh, 
um, situation. And there, there are perhaps much stronger differing views. But I would say through, uh, through the worst stages of the pandemic, uh, there was a fairly high degree of collaboration and cooperation. I think those are some um, helpful lessons and certainly considerations too when you're talking about uh, the sharing between regions, whether that was experiential or actual resources and and materials, and certainly looking ahead to the second wave as well, how that might change. Um, Consul General Lee, can we we have you jump in on this question of of federalism and pandemics? Sure, with pleasure. And as uh, Ambassador Bugaliska said, it's it's a a very large uh, discussion here, and I think we can unpack this um, over over several podcasts, perhaps, but um, your 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 focus was also on what lessons we can learn here in the U.S. I think what's happening in the U.S. is, is very much in the media, um, but what we can learn here, I believe, is that increasingly we're seeing the the various levels of government taking a, a more and more localized approach. Um, I had mentioned here in Washington State the situation in Yakima County um, with the essential workers, and we can draw clear parallels with that situation to some of you know the outbreaks we've seen in Canada in our meatpacking uh, factories to our, our in Quebec to to um, you know the the seniors uh, citizens uh, residences. Um, and here in Seattle, as ground zero, it first, in fact, did manifest in, in some of our senior homes here. Um, and so seeing the increasing polarization and the, the levels of government and the extremely difficult position uh, federal governments have to, uh, to coordinate between all the various jurisdictions, I think the, the lesson we are seeing that you know, uh, as time as time goes on, we'll see how it how it how well it fares in de- various areas. But the localized approach is something that I think uh, um, we can take a lesson from for uh, for us in Canada. Yeah, that, that's I think what makes federalism so interesting, right? On the one hand, it's this wonderful laboratory of experimentation at so many different levels within a single state. Um, but sometimes in situations like these, it also brings um, to the forefront some of the challenges when when those differences become um, increasingly apparent. I, I have one last question for, for all of you. Um, we just lost the vote at the United Nations for a seat on the Security Council. And, you know, we're in the midst of a plant pandemic. What have your country experiences, be it during the pandemic, before the pandemic, what have your experiences taught you that you think could help inform Canada's foreign policy going forward? It's a good question. And I think, I mean, I personally have learned a heck of a lot through this process, both the pandemic and the campaign for the UN um, Security Council seat. Um, And I think the government has as well. And one of the things that I hope that is our takeaway from um, a sort of a development perspective or a global en- engagement perspective um, is the ability to actually move extremely quickly on innovative approaches or, or using our convening power um, to have very important high-level, um, broad-reaching conversations about a challenge that's facing um, the world. We saw this in the, um, the convene- Canada convened um, with the uh, Prime Minister of Jamaica and the UN Security um, 
Secretary General a conference on financing the response um, to COVID-19 in developing countries. We saw the announcement that I mentioned earlier on $850 million um, dollars, uh, for research and development. And we've seen it in terms of the very rapid response on the multilateral level with regards to contributions to supporting um, the crisis. And then we're leveraging our position in places like the G7 and the G20, as well as um, on the boards of the international financial institutions and the African Development Bank to really think carefully about what's needed in developing countries um, to be able to respond to this um, crisis. So I think what I hope that we take away from this is um, the, the reminder of Canada's convening power um, and our ability to um, be at the forefront of this discussion around how does the world come together to respond to a crisis like this in a manner that rep, rep remembers who are the ones that are most vulnerable um, and need some particular attention with regards to their response. Thank you for that. So it's almost a two-part approach there that you're describing, one that's focused on pre-existing um, organizations or, or structures or institutions, and then another that's very much focused on those bilateral or even regional opportunities where Canada can have um, an important impact. Consul General Lee, Ambassador Bugaliskis, High Commissioner Patel, High Commissioner Delaney, thank you very much for joining us today. It was a real pleasure um, to hear from you and to learn about your experiences. We um, in Canada, us Canadians, should all be very proud that we have people with your talents and commitments serving us and representing our interests abroad. <laughs>